0: All right everybody, welcome to another episode of No Driving Gloves. Uh normally we have myself, Derek, uh Will and John here, but tonight or today we uh it's it's only me. I'm alone. Uh Will and John evidently didn't want to participate and uh, they left it up to me. So this will probably go completely off the rails, but uh We uh, did bring in a guest this week, and uh, this will be basically, we've been promising you guys some interviews um, for the last about year that we've been doing the podcast, and uh, we're getting our first interview this week, and uh, personally, I I think it's a good interview. Uh, It's a gentleman I've gotten to know fairly well over the last about six to eight months, I'd say and uh, he now uh, kind of uh, partners here with us at the National Corvette Museum and uh, Motorsports Park that we have up here in Bowling Green. But I want to welcome, I guess, race car driver and uh, many other things, Andy Pilgrim, uh, to the podcast. So Andy, welcome. Thank you so much, Derek. It's a a pleasure to be here. All right. Well, I've I've enjoyed working with you so far. Uh, We've done, I think, some pretty fun and interesting things with some of the collection cars here and Some other stuff brought you on the show, uh, today to talk a little bit more about kind of some of the things you've done in your career, as well as some of the cool things that you're doing with your career. I, I think probably for a lot of our listeners, they'd love to know a little bit about the racing side of uh your your career and your life. Yeah, you know, let's just jump in and I guess how how in the world did you get your start in racing? Simple. Not simple
1: at all um, it's uh, I was basically uh, grew up in England, uh, born and raised in England. Uh, my background out of school was computer programming. The idea of racing was something that I loved family wasn't involved in it there was no go-kart when i was five years old for instance but my interest was always there in four wheels and two wheels Um, my dad used to take me to motorcycle races he was a spectator he was a fan so actually motorcycles was my initial contact whatsoever with racing again in england uh, formula one and sports car racing the le mans 24 hours would be on the radio or something like that or even occasionally on television and i had a huge interest in it so When I came from uh, the UK, I was sort of basically, I had some experience uh, So when I became a programmer in England, I bought a secondhand motorcycle and I started racing it, did a couple of seasons in England, but that was my also, I had a street moped and my race bike was it. And I was basically, that was it. I didn't have a van. I used to have a friend of mine who had a bread van around. He used to basically have the van, his bread ran was like three o'clock in the morning, He would come over to the house. I would pay him gas money to take me to a racetrack. He'd drop me off at the racetrack, and then he'd pick me up in the evening or pick me up from the hospital, whichever place I needed to be bricked up from, right? I mean, I had the best-smelling old motorcycle in the paddock, and believe me, my race bike was seven years old when I even started racing it. But I just had a desire to try to race, and economically, motorcycle racing was it. But I got a job after about two years of racing bikes. I got a job in the U.S., as a programmer. And that's when I came over to the US. I I really wanted to race cars, but again, economically, it was just impractical. Just long story short, um, after about four years over in the US in, in 1984, somebody had sort of told me about this IMSA Renault Cup series, where they used Renault alliances on the East Coast and Renault encores on the, I'm sorry, alliances on the West Coast, encores on the East Coast. Well, of course, I was living in Dallas I got to know about a car, and I bought this second-hand Renault Alliance, and I did the West Coast Renault Series. That was really my first venture into into motorsports, and uh, lucky enough, in 1984, bought the car, had to drive it to the races, didn't have a trailer or anything, so it was street legal. So kind of like a Mazda Miata in a way, you know, like a Mazda Miata race car. It was street legal, drove it. My first race was in Riverside, California, and I was living in Dallas, and so it was 1,400-mile drive like overnight, all the next day to take, to make the race. And I had to drive all the way back to, to take my full-time job because I was still had a full-time job in the IT field when I started racing. Essentially, that's how I got in. And that was a pro series, couldn't afford to race for trophies and I raised some money and I won rookie of the year that first year. That was my very start in racing.
0: Wow. That is a little different than probably some of the American race car driver stories. Uh, you know, we, we here in America, you know, we're used to hearing the story of oh, I grew up with go karts, as you mentioned, and then yeah. you know moved into you know quarter midgets and and up. But you're kind of the story of of someone who had a passion for it, really kind of moved into it in a in a much different way. So yeah. growing up in England, was there? I mean, you mentioned your dad and and motorcycles and some mm-hmm. things. Was there was there one car or uh, motorcycle as a kid that you know was that kind of inspiration or something that you know just had caught your eye that got you in interested in it what what was it that kind of piqued that in you
1: well it was really there was there was no one thing in particular that got me involved but there was a racer back in the day called Mike Hailwood, who was a motorcycle racer a very famous motorcycle racer and then he went into Formula One, and, and he, he didn't do as well in car racing. And that tweaked my interest because I'd always been looking at motorcycles because my dad is a spectator. We'd, you know, He would take me occasionally, like you know, twice a year or whatever, we'd go see a motorcycle race, a local motorcycle race, and, and that was it. But Mike Halewood, I heard about Mike Halewood from my dad and read it in the little newspaper things that he would get. And Mike Halewood went into car racing. And he wasn't as good in car racing. He wasn't as successful, I should say, as he was on bikes. And that kind of that met, got me interested in looking at car racing more. That sort of got me interested. But as far as street cars growing up, I loved everything. I used to chase anything. Um, you know, when I was a little kid, I, just, I could name just about every car. You know, in the old days, you'd have mom and dad in the front. And I would be standing between them. No safety belts, right? You're five, six years old. So I could see out the window. And I'd learned all the names of cars. But Aston Martin, and when I was like in my early teens, somebody came to me, uh, came to the house who was a friend of mom and dad, and he was kind of a, he was a hot rod type enthusiast, did a bit of drag racing, and and he had a, it was a C3 Corvette. And he came to the house with this Corvette. I had never seen anything like it in my life. And that made a huge impression. So early on, I was aware of the Corvette, even though they were so rare in England. And seeing that C3 Corvette was... was, And he took me around the block, you know. uh, I was just you know, I asked him and he took me around the block just to have a drive in it. Him obviously driving me because I was young. (laughs) Yeah. I I wanted to steal it, but I couldn't reach the pedals. Right. Uh, But he took me around the block and that was a C3. So Aston Martins were like the James Bond car. Right. And then it was this Corvette that came to the house. So it it was, it was interesting that that Corvette uh, was very early on and unusual in England. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say not a lot of not a lot of Corvettes running around. Oh, anymore. I never yeah.
1: saw any. When I saw that car, I thought it looked like a spaceship. I mean, if you think about the way this the C3 looks, I mean, it doesn't look like, it didn't really look like anything else, uh, at least in my mind at that time. I mean, it, everything was kind of boxy. You know, even the Aston Martin's were a beautiful car, but they, they were kind of boxy. But then you see this this C3 was like, you know, a, a spaceship design in a way. Yeah. To my yeah. eyeballs back then. Yeah. 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 Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, you know, that kind of, is a good segue into jumping into your racing career a little further up the road than the, the early Renault Cup days. And you would eventually wind up driving for Corvette Racing. Yes. Uh, for mm-hmm. Chevrolet, General Motors. What was your time like? I mean, what when, when you were with Corvette Racing, I mean, yeah, you know, just kind of, I mean, the team atmosphere, I mean, the cars. Right. I mean, what was, I mean? How did it feel being in Corvette racing and being
1: there? Well, the, the initial sort of taste of factory racing started actually with Pontiac, which, of course, we know is no longer with us, if you like. Uh, and then I had some uh, with Porsche, you know, ideas of factory, not like full factory, but I was in factory teams, not as a full factory driver or anything, but I was asked to drive some of the factory cars in the in the mid, uh, mid-late and early 90s up to the mid-late 90s. And you got to meet some of these factory guys, and Gary Claudio, actually one of the guys at General Motors, was the one that sort of, I think, put my name forward, Doug Feehan, Corvette Racing, and I got a call. And the first year, he said, you know, we're only going to be looking at the endurance races like um, the Daytona, Sebring, Petit Le Mans for the first year. So we understand you've got other racing stuff. If you can't do it, fine, but we'd like you to consider it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'd love to do it because this was like a full on race contract with a factory team. And it was like this is I mean, it's what you dream about as a sports car racer i mean you know we can't go into formula one i was i was 27 years old when i even started racing so for a factory team to call me when i'm like almost 40 years old and say you know we've got a we've got a basically an, an opportunity for you here it was it was amazing even though it was initially in 99 only uh, the three endurance races And then, you know, it went on from there, obviously. It always felt like home. Gary Pratt and the engineers there that was initially quite small operation, Doug Feehan, uh, one of the funniest guys I've ever met. And also really straightforward guy, you know, very honest, very open. Sometimes in factory racing, it's not like that. Doug will tell you basically exactly what the story is. And I like that. I'm not good on the politics so much in the sense I'm not, not good at it necessarily, but I don't particularly care for it. I much prefer to know the the, the exactly what the deal is. And um, between Doug and Gary Pratt and Robin Pratt, his wife, who was the team mom, you know, it was uh, quite small to start with. And, of course, Ron Fellows and Chris Neifel early on and John Heinersey he was part of it very initially. And then it just matured, you know, through uh, to, for me up until uh, like five years with Corvette absolutely wonderful experience. And of course, the C5R was just a monster, you know, being involved in Corvette, going back to racing at Le Mans. Fantastic. I'd already been there with Porsche, but this was, you know, Corvette and it was in a long time and a factory proper deal. was amazing. It was amazing. Amazing. Amazing time. Great, great racing memories.
0: Fantastic. And, and you're not just saying that because you, you work here at the museum.
1: Right? <laughs> no, no. And, and, you know, it's, a, yeah, it's very, very easy. No, I can also talk about, you know, Porsche GT1s being an amazing car and the and the, the C5R because there's so many great race cars that I've been fortunate. And then the Cadillacs going into that. But no, seriously, in those five years, a wonderful, wonderful time. Amazing time. A great opportunity. You know, I have to deliver when you're in a factory team, you have to deliver great opportunity is one thing but then to be there longevity wise and then get asked to go into the Cadillac program from the Corvette program things like that and then to see what the Corvette programs become over the years and the success you know to be to know that I was part a small part of that at the beginning is well it's very special it's very special you know understanding how I got into racing I think makes it more special you know because I didn't have the money. I mean I had to beg borrow and to get that second hand race car drive it to the racetrack. I think when you come up that way and this is nothing against people that have you know the, the the means to do it differently, but I'm just saying in my case anyway, coming up that way, the appreciation of any time I get in any vehicle it's special. I try to take care of it because I remember how difficult it was to find the money to repair stuff, and so I think that's gone through and just I really have a genuine appreciation of. Any of the opportunities I've had, and I think Corvette Racing, without doubt, is absolutely one of the very you know most important opportunities I ever got in racing.
0: Yeah, and you know during that time in Corvette Racing, I mean, you guys, there was a lot of progress in Corvette Racing. You know, getting back into the game, you know, as a factory-backed team, getting into some of the major races, winning some extremely important races, bringing in some extremely well-known drivers in into the team as well and I know you had some you had the the opportunity and, and pleasure I'm sure of being part of the team when Dale Earnhardt uh, senior and junior were driving had that experience and I believe you got you got to know them fairly yes. fairly well yes um, so you know and I, I think anybody that's a, a fan of any type of racing everybody pretty much knows the name Dale Earnhardt I mean, he was a bigger-than-life character in racing, and, yeah. and did a lot for the sport of racing while he was in it. You know, just uh, you know, briefly, what I mean. What were your experiences with him? What was your impression of the man? Yeah. And and of course, you know, we lost him tragically. Yeah. You know, just just some of that time with Corvette racing that you got to experience. Absolutely.
1: My first understanding, or no, my first sort of connection with Dale goes back to uh, October two thousand. And Petit Le Mans, uh, the ten-hour race there ended up with a what you know people termed the, the pilgrim pass, uh, with you know a lap or two to go before the end of a ten-hour race. I made a pass on the world champion Viper, and we ended up winning Petit Le Mans, and that was the first big win, if you want to call one of the majors. Uh, that was our first majors. It was our second Corvette win and the first one. That t- pass was on RPM tonight as the pass of the week. I didn't know that because I was either traveling or whatever. And I got a, uh, I got home, and believe we did have emails back then, and I was answering emails on a Monday, on the uh, on the Tuesday morning, I think, after the race, I was back home, and it was on Tuesday morning, I got a FedEx package, and in the FedEx package, it basically had a letter, and I thought it actually opened it, and I thought Dale Earnhardt Incorporate, I thought it was a catalog or something, I had no idea, and it was a letter from Dale. Uh, basically saying, you know, wow, man, that was some pass you made on that Viper. Uh, That pass is exactly why I want you as my teammate for the next year's 2001 uh, Daytona 24 hours. And, uh, you know, uh, look forward to seeing you up here in a few weeks. I'm on, this is all unknown to me, and you, sincerely, Dale Earnhardt. And I'm looking at the letter, I'm like, oh my goodness. What is going on? Because I hadn't heard any rumors that they might want to drive Corvette. I'd heard nothing. So I called Gary Claudio, who was the manager at that point, said, Gary, I just got this letter from Dale Aluna. This is unbelievable. And he's like, oh, that's why he called our office looking for your address. We didn't know. Oh, well, listen, Andy, uh, you can't say anything to anybody. We're going to announce this in three weeks. I said, Dah! I said, come on, man. Three. He said, Andy, three weeks, three weeks. Just you can't say a word. OK, Gary, no problem. Thanks, man. So it was like, you know, that was the initial introduction, and I didn't say anything, and then we went to North Carolina, and uh, just to, again, if this is going on too long, Derek, you just tell me, mate, but there's just one little story. When I first met Dale, he won Talladega. This was like, uh, you know, in probably November or late, late October, so it would have been probably late October. He'd won Talladega, and this was a Monday morning, and we, Gary Claudio said, you and I are going up to meet Dale and Dale Jr., because they're going to be both driving in the car, I said, okay, fine. So we're sitting, I literally must've been a hundred reporters because there was going to be the Camaro, the Dale Earnhardt Camaro edition, uh, Dale Earnhardt edition Camaro, I should say. And then our race car was sort of covered up, both were covered up and it was going to be a double, you know, announcement thing. I was there with Gary at the back of the room and I'm I was telling you, there was a hundred media, there were probably 20 TV cameras in the back of the room. It was crazy. So I'm sitting there with Gary and I'm like, Gary, this is, this is huge. And he said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. You know, Gary's seen a door before, but I'm late. My eyeballs were three feet wide, you know. So suddenly at the front, somebody comes from the front. You know, we were at the back, and it was the front kind of from the wrong side. The doors, I thought, were behind us. But somebody came from behind the back, and uh, it was Dale. And all the reporters just started like, you know, wasps around a nest, right, in. And, he, and all I heard was, where's Andy is Andy where's Andy Pilgrim where's Andy like this and he just said Andy excuse me he just said Andy where's Andy and Gary's like elbowing me because he said that's you you idiot because he didn't say Pilgrim he said Andy and I was I didn't know I thought his manager's name's Andy I didn't know so he said good and I I walked towards him the sort of the seas parted the reporters parted you know and Dale's coming out with a big smile on his face big handshake and and he just shakes my hand and I I said Dale it's so nice to meet you said Andy so good man Man, that was some pass you made on that Viper two or three weeks ago. I said, well, you did pretty good at Talladega yesterday. And I was like, he said, I don't want to talk about that. He said, that Viper. And then he basically put his arm around me. And he talks to this whole load of reporters there. And he says, do you guys know who this is? And I'm thinking, I'm in Mooresville, North Carolina. There is no living cell in this, you know, that knows who Andy Pilgrim, the sports car driver is. Come on. Luckily, one reporter says, that that Andy Pilgrim? And uh, he, he says, yeah, did you guys see the pass this guy made on those Vipers to this whole group of reporters? And I'm thinking, I got Dale Earnhardt as a PR guy. This is just crazy. So that was the initial meeting. I mean, he was just the nicest, just most humble person. And uh, he was just so inclusive and everything else. And it just went from there and we just we did, i've got so many dale stories that we could go on for hours but over the next 5 months essentially dale and i got to know each other as friends uh, just just uh, talking on the phone or or traveling with him one on one in places just to to do with the Corvette race program trying to help him out trying to help him and dale junior as well cuz junior was there And also, you know, we we did the first test at Sebring together, the stories from that and other places and going up to Pratt Miller together over the time. And then, of course, the race weekend and also uh, me talking to him about Kelly Collins, my regular teammate. And I I advised Dale. I said, Dale, this race could be wet. It could be. We need probably need four people. Dale Jr.'s not had. Any time, really on these kind of cars or anything else um, it'd probably be a good idea whether it's Dale you and me or even three regular drivers it's always good to have a fourth guy in case somebody doesn't doesn't feel well or whatever and he looked at Kelly met Kelly and that's how Kelly got included just as a little tidbit for you guys the early models the clean models of the car the C5R with Earnhardt don't have Kelly's name on because they were made before this all happened and the cars that came afterwards had Kelly's name on. So that's the that's the reason why those cars are different. It wasn't that it was left off at the time when we started when we made the announcement it was just going to be the three of us. And I was the one that said, "Hey, you know what? It would be nice to for Kelly to be in there. We might well need him, you know. And he he did a great job. Kelly did a fantastic job too during the 24. So that's how it started uh the relationship and sadly, of course, after the race we finished second. You know, had a great time. It did rain a lot, uh, which was was one of those things. So it was good, certainly good to have Kelly there. All, you know, everybody drove, everybody had a good time, and sadly, two weeks later, I was he invited me to come to the to the 500, which was the first NASCAR race I'd ever been to in my life, and uh, you know, also the stories from there as well, because I ended up being the very last person to have a conversation with him on the radio while he was. Under full course, uh, under full course yellow before they went back to green, which then sadly, you know, ended the race. So that's that's it in a
0: nutshell. So hopefully that wasn't too long for you, Derek. Uh, no, no, I think that was that was fantastic. And I, I guess you know, brief, briefly mention, you know, that was your first experience at a NASCAR race. But you would it was. eventually drive. Briefly mm-hmm. in NASCAR, so yes. you did get yes. involved in that as well a little yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the story behind that was quite
1: funny actually. It was playing golf. Uh, I love golf. I haven't played in the last three years because I've been too busy, but I do love golf. And it was uh, back in 2007, and I was playing golf with some friends of mine. And my phone, I saw my phone was going, and I grabbed it, and uh, it was Dale Jr. And he said, Oh, Hey Andy, what's going on? I said, nothing junior. I said, I'm kind of playing golf and stuff. He said, Oh, you got a minute. I said, well, is it possible that I can call you, call you back after I'm done playing golf? Cause you know, and he said, it's kind of important like this, you know, it's <laughs> like, Oh, it is. He said, okay, go ahead, go ahead. Okay. I'll just tell, I'll walk away. So I walked away, you know, and 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 he said, I just want to know if you want to drive my, 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 uh, nationwide cars, uh, in, in a couple of races. And I was like, what he said i'd love to have you race a couple of, if you'd like to do it and i said ah uh, yeah i'd love to do it so that was 2007 and the navy car and uh he set that up and he said it was something he he said that it's something that him and his dad had talked about or he'd heard his dad talk about and he wanted to make it happen i thought it was amazing It was a, just an amazing gesture on his part and uh, I had a wonderful time, and that was those two races. And then I did do a Sprint Cup race in 2011 with uh, the Whitney Motorsports guys out of um, out of Michigan. So those are my three races. But I, a bucket list was to try and do the you know the Nationwide Series and then also to do a Cup race. And I managed to do them both before, you know, at this point in my career, which is, you know, almost at an end, if you want to call it that. So they were definite bucket lists. So, yeah, it was great.
0: Those of us that... Uh, you know, are in this, um, fortunate to be in this career in some Mm -hmm. way of being around automobiles. You know, I've had the fortune to be around a lot of different race cars in, in the museum Mm -hmm. world, um, and running, you know, over at Goodwood, things like that. A lot of people, you know, you hear it from different racers, you hear from different people that have been around them. NASCARs are a completely different beast. Yes. I mean, your, your thoughts on that. I mean, going from something like a C5R, into uh an american you know muscle bound big engine nascar i mean what was it like what were it's it's well
1: it's almost imagine uh, for me because i used to race showroom stock back in the late 80s even into the mid 90s the cars were basically very showroom stocky um, and uh, you know they didn 't have particularly grippy tires we didn 't have the real grippy tires that we do now, even for some street cars uh, they were slip and slide all over, but they only had about four hundred horsepower those cars. It really took me back to those cars and now add another 450 horsepower on top so they roll a lot they and you you know the I mean I used to I used to basically say you know we had bicycle brakes and chocolate tires and and it was like it was just kind of like that way there was very little downforce on the cars that we ran back then so you had big you know you just always had a slip-on angle you never were actually you know going well unless it was a, a hairpin you were never using all your mechanical grip and not sliding the car because the only way to get through the corner was to kind of rotate the car going in and drift through the corner and it was pretty much the same with the cup car. Tremendous amount of body roll because the tires are, they're a great cup tire. There's nothing against the tire but it has a, a certain amount of grip. It's the same for everybody but it's not a lot of grip. So you have to slide the car and try and make the sliding as minimal as possible and not get it, let it be too much in the front or too much in the rear and you're trying to control all this horsepower. Um, it was a huge challenge. I mean, the thing with the cup race was I I got no practice ever in a cup car before I had to qualify in at serious point. And it was one of those races at at Sonoma where, um, you know, I had to qualify in. And I qualified in as the last person to qualify in, and I had to fight to get in, but I had no practice at all. I don't know if anyone's actually had to qualify into a NASCAR cup race and actually never, ever, ever sat in the car and ran it before they had to run. And then lose an hour of their only practice session, which was an hour and a half with a with a differential problem. And so I basically had 20 minutes in the car before I had to qualify, yeah. and that was something. That was like used every ounce of my experience, plus calls to Ron Fellows and Jan Magnuson <laughs> to say, "Hey guys, uh, I've had minimal time," and that was, <laughs> and I won't say what Jan said, but he basically said, um, "Yeah, you're probably not going to qualify." Ian, uh, he yeah. said, but let's let me ha- let me try and help you, and he did. Ron and Ron and Ian helped me out with some advice, and I just had to execute, and I managed it. So great memories of those those races as well. But the cars are just old school, man. To answer your question, old school with no sway bars, it feels like rolling all over the place. Insane amount of power, and uh, like I say, brakes you know off a bicycle and chocolate tires, uh, but it was fun, 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 man. Yeah, if I if I had just had like you know a career in like Formula cars or something or Indy car and then tried to do that, I think without any practice at all, I think it would have been impossible. But I just kind of, I went deep in the, to the sense of trying to remember exactly the quick way to drive those cars with minimal amounts of grip, and that's what it was, you know. And I just managed to squeak in, and we finished. We finished on the lead lap and had a good run. Yeah,
0: very cool. Very cool. So. You've had a lot of time behind a lot of different race cars, Mm. Uh, the wheels, the wheel of a lot of different race cars. Um, So, and, and knowing about your career and some of the things you've done and, and some of the videos that are out there that you've done, you, you've spent a lot of time behind the wheel of production cars, you know, doing evaluations, track testing for different magazines that you write for what personal car do you own or what personal car would you maybe choose out of everything that you kind of now know about cars why would that like why would that be why you know what from your experience as a race yeah. car driver yeah leads you to make the choices that uh, you make today in in a personal car
1: well i have an interesting eclectic taste for cars. I can't collect cars. It's not, one, I don't have the space for it. And two, you know, you've got to have kind of a lot of money to do that. So I go through cars fairly quickly. had, you know, Corvettes to Porsche GT3s to Forerunners to, um, you know, Honda Civic Type R, which is actually what I'm driving around at the moment in is a Honda Civic Type R. Um, you know, it's got more room in it than an SUV and it's fantastic. You know, just it's a great street car. Manual transmission, you know, I'm, I'm fine if it's an automatic or a double clutch. I have a, I just have a really eclectic, you know, I actually liked the Pontiac Aztec. And that's something that my editor of Automobile Magazine thinks I'm a complete moron for. But I, I, just, I just thought they were great because they were so different. And uh, so I, I enjoy all kinds of different cars, all kinds of different cars, Derek. Uh, yeah, just, have yeah. a just, just general interest of cars. And I will, you know, I like to own something that I find interesting. And if I find it interesting, I can own it. It doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have, you know, it just has to be somewhat practical. I'm a practical kind of person and I'm a big motorcycle guy. So when I look at the acceleration performance of the motorcycles um, that, I, that I have or I have owned, um, when you're talking about acceleration and things like that, the motorcycles are ridiculously fast. And so the cars for me, I love the handling, love the good braking. And virtually everybody these days is making some good stuff. You know, there's there's everybody, whether it's GM, Ford, to the Japanese companies, to the to the German companies, to the international Volvo, and anyone else. There's really not many bad cars out there now. So pretty much take your pick. So it's fun writing for the magazine, especially like we've got our automobile all stars thing coming up, and you do track testing and street testing on 28 different cars, and it's like so I get to sample all this good stuff. So. Just very, very fortunate to have driven so many cars and can continue to do so. So it's almost irrelevant what I have in my garage. But at the <laughs> moment, it's a Honda Civic Type uh-huh. R. So I get to drive so much different stuff. It's it, I feel very fortunate in that sense. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you're... Uh... Probably a little bit like uh, one of our hosts on the show, John Viviani Mm -hmm. from the the Mm -hmm. Barber Museum. Mm -hmm. Uh, He seems to be buying a a new car and and talks about it on most episodes, Mm -hmm. about every month. Yeah, he'll he'll go through cars, and I mean, he goes from not quite, not quite that
1: uh, lucky, but no, (laughs) I'll I'll go through a few. Yeah, definitely, definitely once a year, I'll I'll probably change cars once a year. yeah.
0: Yeah, he's got. I mean, he goes from. You know a, a Ford Taurus SHO. Yeah. To you know, yeah, he's got a, a the new um, Ford Transit Connect that he drives yeah. around. I mean, just yeah. and, good, and that's the way stuff. I think yeah. all of us are that are in yeah. this this car hobby. You know, we yeah we love cars, and if we have the chance to drive something yeah. different and unique, we're going to take it. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I I was in
1: Colorado uh, for a race the other week, and I I almost got the option um, uh, to get the pickup truck. Uh, because they had a, obviously they got more SUVs in Colorado because of where, but they had a, a couple of four wheel drive pickups, and I've done that before. So even renting cars as often as I do, because I'm traveling all the time, I get all excited just to look in the you know in the whole area. Like, let's see what can I what can I take because it's that you know kind of that thing where you can take whatever cars in the group, and
0: I love it. I love it. I I get excited in any different car. Oh yeah, I just yeah, like yeah. cars. Yeah, I just like cars. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're yeah. fantastic, and you know that's segue into. Maybe the next portion of what I want to talk to you about is street cars, cars that everyday people are driving. You know, I've I've heard you say it here at work. I've heard you say it on talks you're giving. I've heard you say it in videos of, you know, cars you're evaluating and, and test driving with people. You're, a, I mean, your race career, five championships, 68 races won. And some of those cars you were driving out on the track have less horsepower than production yeah. some production oh. cars today. And we're putting the production those production cars with higher horsepower into the hands of people who don't have the training that, you know, race car drivers yes. of of your talent have yeah. and trusting that they can drive them safely, mm-hmm. which, you know, we've talked about on this show before, a lot of distracted driving things and really aside more than talking to you about your racing career, I wanted to bring you on the show because you're doing something that is really kind of near and dear to, uh, most of the hosts, all three of the hosts on this show, which is safe driving, yeah. you know, safe driving for, yeah. um, the American public. You mm-hmm. have your, um, Correct me if I'm wrong, Traffic Safety Education Foundation. That is exactly Correct. right, sir. Exactly and, right, uh, yes. you're you're doing that. Uh, part of that is your partnership here with the Museum and Motorsports Park. It's kind of scary to think that out on the street with 16-year-old kids, 17-year-old kid that just yeah. got their license could be in a car that has more horsepower than some of the cars you were racing. What led you, number one, to start your foundation? What was it that really got you passionate about that and made you make the decision to do something that is so needed right now? It really goes back to when I came to the States. Um, I, re- I, I had
1: $106 in my pocket. I knew I had a job didn't actually get paid for three weeks, didn't realize that happened in England. When you get a new job, they basically do a paycheck when they walk in the door because they've assumed you've been sleeping on the streets, right? So you get a paycheck day one and, you know, to, to make up and that's how it works. You sort of get paid ahead, not behind, uh, which was quite interesting. But I, I came here simply, I had a job, I had to work hard. Um, $106 was all, all that I had, you know, out of my savings and everything from England and everything else. And I sold all my bits and paid off the debts with trying to race motorcycle over there and everything else. I got my IT career going quite well. Um, I was working uh, up until nineteen uh, sort of eighty nine uh, with another company as a manager, and then I started my own little IT consulting company. With, and then uh, with twenty grand that I had, and that was going reasonably well. By the mid nineties, I had my own little company. I had some employees working there, and my racing was going well. By the mid nineties, I'd won my first professional championship, and I thought, you know what these two things are going okay i can certainly pay my bills i'm not going to be a rich rich wealthy person it doesn't matter the point is life's going okay my mother and my godmother were really big into charity and giving back uh very much so and you know i got dragged to these things when i was a little kid so essentially i was looking for something that made sense to me to give back and it ended up being traffic it ended up being driving so i started researching the driving test i started researching how how uh, students are trained and I saw there was a need so I started talking believe it or not it was back in 1994 actually I still have notes from the first time I went to my local high school which was very close to my house where I was living in in South Florida and I used the term distracted driving in my notes and I still have notes on distracted driving it's always been about distracted driving the thing is now we we you know there's a lot of differentiation like it's drunk driving issue There's a lot of people that go have a couple of beers, three beers every Friday. And I'm not saying they should ever drive if they do that. But the fact of the matter is they've been doing the same thing for 20 years. And then they also now they're using their phone on the way home. And that's a problem because they're they may not be quite they're not impaired to the point that they can't necessarily drive themselves home because they've done it for 20 years But now they're also trying to use the smartphone because there's nobody out there in the U.S. now that doesn't have one who wants one. And, you know, there's other things like if you're if you're taking your prescription medications, then you were concentrating on trying to drive because, you know, you're probably impaired slightly. But you're also trying to use your smartphone. And this is the biggest problem. Now we have these combinations of distracted driving, which pigeonholed into a drunk driving issue. Well, yes, the person may have been over the limit but if they crash while using their phone, it's a distracted driving crash. It's not just a drunk driving crash. There's nowhere in the statistics to put both. So distracted driving has always been an issue that I've been talking about. And nowadays, with the fact that at the end of 2014, we reached this full saturation of smartphones, as a, person of mine, a friend of mine of Verizon Wireless said, I had no idea what full saturation was. They said, oh, at the end of 14, everybody wanted a smartphone had one which was around 200 million and since then they've been fighting over each other's territory from that point it's very interesting that at the end of 2014 through 15 16 17 we've had the fastest increase in fatalities and injuries that we've had in over 60 60 years and we are the we have the fastest worst increase the largest percentage increase in fatalities and injuries in the world in the last three or four years in the world. And Derek, that's just something that it, it it always felt to me that I should be in traffic safety. So I've made a tremendous number of educational videos uh, for people to use, for parents to use. But it essentially comes down to the fact that in the US, we don't have a driving test, which is very difficult. Other countries have an extraordinarily difficult driving test. It makes it you a much better driver. But the test itself is very, very difficult. Our test is over half the drivers that get a new license in the United States never get any structured driver education. So we have basic issues with the test itself. And then for me, we have the parent problem, which is in a sense, when you've got a 15 year old now, and I I just was in Illinois, I was 400 uh, students and I was talking to them for 45 minutes, a great bunch of kids that really kept their attention. They gave me their attention very, very well for 45 minutes. They didn't know me from Adam, most of them. You know what I mean? It was, it, so it's hard. You've got to work very hard to keep the attention of high school students for, for 40, 40 seconds, never mind 45 minutes. But, but the key point there was, and I asked all of them, I said, before we get started, how many of you have never, ever seen your parents using a cell phone while driving with you in the car? How many? Two hands out of 400 students. Two. That's not unusual. And so we've got this massive... Misconception by parents that the kids are not paying attention. When you turn that child's safety seat around to face front, your child is starting to pay attention. And there's very good evidence, very good evidence in neuro research. And I had to look at this stuff. I'm not a genius about this stuff, but I had to figure it out because my evaluation data from 11 year olds to 15 year olds wasn't panning out. Something must have happened. And it was at a brain development conference that I heard someone speak and they said basically we have two brain growth spurts in our children one around three and one around basically puberty and at 11 12 whenever that that's it whatever they've learned up to that point is fixed everything else is intervention so this is when i basically said to myself i have to come up with a mobility curriculum that they can use from grade four through six and that's what i've done so a lot of my educational materials are being used and utilized but you have to do the research, but we have an incredibly unique problem in the United States. It really is. There's no way with the newness of our vehicles, with the kind of roads we've got, yes, we've got potholes in some of the states, we know about the infrastructure, but compare it to most of the other countries out there that are better than us in the last four years or three years as far as keeping their fatalities down because they have a much harder driving test. I need to let parents know that you are the driver ed teacher. The biggest thing I need to help parents with is understanding that they are the driver education teacher. When you talk to parents, they believe it's peers or the driver education teacher is the biggest influence on the kids driving. It's actually the parents. Parents have that misconception. When you ask the kids, 75% of them will say, you know, if I ask them, what's your biggest influence on your driving? Oh, my parents. There's a huge disconnect between what the parents believe the kids learn. So understanding that and knowing that over 50% of these kids will pass the test, it's so easy. It shouldn't be, but it's never going to change. You've got to understand the politics and economics behind that. It's not going to change. So understanding, I have to let parents know this driving test in the U.S. is incredibly easy, way too easy to be useful. They will drive exactly, your kids will drive exactly the way you do. They will drive with the aggression. They will drive with rolling through stop signs, speeding up for red lights, not paying attention, eating in the car, using the phone, etc. That's the key. So most of my educational materials, everything's free to drive red teachers to parents. And tens of thousands of drive red teachers are starting to use my stuff in classrooms, uh, which is very gratifying because that's what I wanted. I wanted my stuff to be good enough to be used by the teachers. And I've worked with NHTSA. Uh, in the sense that I've sent all my new materials to them, they can't endorse anything. They're not allowed to, but they've been very, very kind to look at my stuff and say we believe this is good stuff. We don't have a problem with it. That's all I. That's all I can. That's all I can. You know. That's all I can hope is for them to not have a problem with it, and then I, I feel comfortable showing it to parents, showing it to students, for teachers to use it. So I'm going to keep doing it. It's a passion. It's what I spend most of my time doing these days. And it's one of the reasons, um, you know, that I moved uh, to Bowling Green is to work on traffic safety initiative here. And obviously working with the National Corvette Museum and the Motorsports Park to try and forward that uh, to help the whole country. But why not start it in Bowling Green, Kentucky? Why not? We could start it, you know, as long as it helps here, then it can probably help anywhere.
0: Yeah, definitely grow it, grow it out, yeah. and yeah, we actually had an episode a while back uh, talking about a lot of these things. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I, th- I think we had a a friend of of John's on that is uh, involved in some traffic uh, education stuff, but we talked a little bit about you know this the lax approach to driver's education here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and kind of as you say, you know, I, th- I think we brought up uh, I think it's Norway that has one of the most rigorous and most intensive driver's education programs where they have to be able to Mm -hmm. actually drive on essentially a road course with skid pads and Mm -hmm. and be able to control the car until they can, they don't get a license. I mean, it's almost sad to see how bad driver's education is here in the U.S. And, you know, so, you know, kind of where I was headed with that is, you know, where do you feel the biggest issue lies is it yeah we just talked a lot about Mm. lax drivers training programs you know parents have to understand you know where is where are these issues you know what in the world's going on here what you know what do you see essentially
1: essentially it comes back to parents the parents need to understand the parents don't understand how bad things are so it's not i'm not saying they're all bad parents it's like they don't know they're not The parents aren't driver ed teachers. They don't understand the problem. So my job is to explain to parents that we have a driving test, which is a complete joke. Your kids will drive with all the distractions and all the attitude issues that you have if you have them as parents. And when I'm looking at 99% of every student in every school that I go to in the last three years, 99% of those kids see their parents driving distracted using a phone, 99%. It's not going to get unlearned when you have no driving test worth anything. Driver ed teachers are on the front lines. They unfortunately get these kids. These kids come in knowing they don't have a test that they even need to study for. They have no reason. They know how to drive because they've been watching their parents. So, And we don't have a driving test that's going to, going to tax them or test them or help them to unlearn anything. So essentially, the parents are the driver ed teacher. And if I can get the parents early enough, the problem is 99% of the money and information that goes into driver education for the parents is when the kids get a permit. That's about 12 years too late. If I talk to five-year-olds and six-year-olds, they can describe perfectly their parents' distracted driving behavior. I have it on one of my videos, that a PSA that I made five years ago, talking to seven-year-olds, then they were ratting their parents out perfectly. So the problem is we have to get to the kids earlier the problem is the test, not so much the driver education process or the teachers. I'm telling you, these teachers will come to these conferences. I've spoken at 50 conferences in the last 10 years, at least 50 conferences. And the driver of teachers pay their own way there. They do care. And they are they are mortified about the fact that 85% of those kids come in with the attitude, like, I just I'm just doing my time. I can go take the test today. I don't need to talk to you. So if they understand that, now It's not going to change. So when I made my video called Realities of Driving Today, it talks about this. We're basically setting them up to fail. The system won't change. It's politics and economics. If the parents, and it's sad, but the parents sense that we're going to have a harder driving test or you might raise the minimum driving age, which won't do anything to help at all. You've got to make the test harder. Never going to happen because the kid will take longer to pass the test, just like it happens in other countries. Developing... And developed and industrialized countries have much harder driving tests than we do. Every single one of them. Our driving test is unique in the world for being as easy as it is. But once a par- you talk to a parent of a 15-year-old, they'll say, uh, I have this great information that you guys have given me about this stuff, but I haven't had a conversation worth anything with my kid in probably three or four years since they were 12 years old. And that's the truth. So if you have that issue, that disconnect, it's very difficult to have the kids understand. So I have to help the parents understand that they need to they, they are the ones that can change this. But if I talk to a parent with a seven year old, the parent is way more engaged. And then if you talk to the parent of a newborn, so I've made information for parents with newborns, for parents with seven year olds, eight year olds, eleven year olds, twelve year olds, and I'm teaching my kid to drive. I had informa- I've made information for all those. But the ones where I get the biggest turnout of parents is when I'm talking to 8, 9, 10-year-olds and we have a parent meeting after school. I'll get 100, 200 parents showing up because the kids are 8, 7 years old and they want to know what's going on. I mean, it is so hard to get parents to come out when you have a high school meeting just because the kids, you know, they it's just it's just the timing is wrong. So I'm pushing it back. So if I could, I've, I've talked to parents of newborns and they pay attention like you won't believe they want every bit of information I've got, and those parents understand that when you turn that child safety seat around to face front, it's just we're in the wrong place. So I'm one person, one one person in a foundation that I started, but all my materials are being picked up, and they've been picked up by thousands of parents. But there's millions of new license holders every year. I'm just one person, so I'm I'm just doing what I can, Derek. But it, I'm making progress. I just need to do it bigger, and that's one of the reasons I'm in Bowling Green. We're going we're gonna to make it happen in Bowling Green, hopefully. That's why I'm spending a lot of time in Washington, D.C., meeting with lawmakers just to make them understand, help them understand what I'm trying to do and get some support. Because it's going to be a big project, but I've got to set it up first before we get going. But I know, I know the city of Bowling Green is behind me because I met with a lot of leaders here in Bowling Green, and they say, hey, when you get ready to go, we're on. So I'm excited, uh, you know, within the next year, hopefully we'll get this thing cranked up and we're going to have to do a culture change because the laws won't change. The tests will not get harder. We've got to look at the politics and economics, you know, people that, you know, you, you're just not going to suddenly have everybody passing the test at 20 years old. The uproar would be massive. Parents would say, Hey, I've waited for 16 years for little Johnny to take little Ben to basketball practice. I ain't now waiting another four years. Not happening. Sorry, done. It's politics and it's economics. When a, when a kid's at 16, parents are buying them a new car. Can you imagine? That shifts to twenty nineteen, like it is in other countries because it's hard to pass the test. Plus, it costs a heck of a lot because you've got to have 40 lessons with somebody to, to pay them. Politics, economics, understand that. That's where I'm at. So we've got to push it back. So yeah, it's it's a passion. I'll shut up now.
0: Yeah. Oh, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> this this is where I get to take it off the rails as I talked about at the beginning, because Go as ahead, you Mike. were talking, Go ahead, Mike. Yeah. my mind shot down yeah. so many different paths, uh, you know, approaching this from the automotive historian side of uh, you know, who I am. Um, just thinking about the automobile over the last you know, 125 years. Let's call it. That's that's a rough number. Thinking about the development of the automobile and, and the history of the automobile. Thinking about the things that you just talked about, my mind immediately went to, and and I think I've mentioned it on the show before, but you know, with you here and talking about traffic safety, it's it's another great time to bring it up. Cars have gone from, in the early 1900s, every car being different on how you drove it. You had to learn how to handle each car. The shift lever was in a different place. The throttle was in a different place. The The steering, in some cases, was different in cars that early on. And eventually, yes, we would, you know, standardize a lot of those, you know, features so it was a little easier to understand the automobile. But as we standardized and, and as car culture became, I guess, in my opinion, watered down somewhat in the united states and and everyone we talked about this i think on the on the show last week it almost seems like everybody just in america at least looks at the car like an appliance anymore it's just oh it's just another machine i have to have to do something in my opinion again and and we've lost that art of driving we we've truly lost driving and what the definition of driving is because you no longer have to shift the car you no longer have to understand what the controls do Mm -hmm. you never have to you don't have to understand those things anymore and anymore you know i think i mentioned it on the show before we're we're guiding a, a basically a deadly object down the road hoping we don't hit something i think you have different terminology for it but does that play into a factor here does all of these improvements i'm doing air quotes here for you know all the folks out listening in the automobile like automatic transmissions hands-free devices like bluetooth all these things that are supposed to improve our driving skills and and we've even talked about the backup cameras and some of those safety feature lane change warning feature what are your thoughts is that is that adding to the problem is that helping the problem is it a mixture like what what's going on with this technology that we see change over the history of the automobile you know have we hurt the safe driving and now we're trying to correct that with some of the things we're adding or what what do you see what do you what do you think
1: first of all i agree uh yes we have heard it but um if you if you go back to the beginning like you said the cars were different and difficult to drive necessarily you had a column shifter With a clutch, you had a, you know, on the floor, four on the floor type of shifter. Um, There were were things that you needed to do. Then the cars had drum brakes. There was no ABS. There are certainly techniques and improvements that have helped with safety. Airbags, no doubt about it. ABS brakes, indubitably. Better tires, better brakes, period. Of course, stability control. One of probably next to ABS, the most brilliant thing ever. People don't even realize how many times that thing's saved. There are superb technological improvements. Uh, crash, crash safety, uh, soft zones in the cars. Used to have, you know, the underdash was steel and would just rip people's legs apart when their legs went up underneath because it was just steel. That was terrible. Back in the '60s, '70s, the big, big cars there. So some improvements are, are brilliant. Then what? What we've got sort of is the what I term enable to disable. And so the enabling of us not to have to worry about lane change, uh, we've got the beep or the vibrating seat or whatever that tells us that, you know, we're drifting out of our lane. So we have late lane centering. Um, we have auto brake assist because Mercedes realized back in the 90s that people weren't really depressing the brake pedal to get the 100% out of the brake system. So they added to auto brake assist, which is which is useful. But it's also a problem if, you know, somebody's following behind a person with auto brake assist and they're tailgating. Auto brake assist works like the car just hit a brick wall. But what happens is now, so what we're finding is some of the some of the rear end impacts are massively worse than they were because tailgating is is a sort of habitual problem. Because again, we don't train people not to do it. We don't explain why you should not follow a Porsche 911, which can stop in 98 feet from 100 miles an hour, in a pickup truck, which can stop in maybe 200 feet from 60 miles an hour. There's a reason you don't tailgate the Porsche, because unless you can jump over it, there's going to be a problem. I mean, it's really about the education process. So when the new cars with the new technology, such as the brake assist, such as the backup cameras, are sold... Nobody really spends the time to explain to the people the upsides and the downsides. And the advertising is tragic because it shows people completely distracted. I don't care which car company it is. They're all showing these completely distracted people. And the car miraculously stops before it hits the guy walking the dogs or before it hits the guy who drops his papers or the, you know, the, the, whatever. It, it, it's just showing this stuff, which is unreasonable. Because if you read page 126 subsection B4 in the manual, it says, oh, um, this, this technology only works up to 19 miles an hour with any guarantee. Or this technology only works up to 23 miles an hour with any guarantee. And if somebody steps right in front of you, well, it will only mitigate. We don't guarantee that it will actually not be contact. It will just mitigate because it will be braking before you would have braked. People see the ad. Nobody gets hit. Nobody, The pedestrian doesn't get hit at 15 miles an hour instead of 30 it stops miraculously three inches before hitting the dogs and the guy, and it's like, oh, I want that because I know I'm a distracted driver, so it enables to disable. Friends of mine, when originally Mercedes came out five years ago with the fact that the stop-and-go traffic, your Mercedes could stay, and this is nothing against Mercedes, the, the this technology is brilliant, but you you can abuse it. And uh, the car was a stop and go technology and maintain lane in stop and go traffic. So he bought the car specifically because he could work on do his work in 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 LA traffic because he was stuck in traffic two hours a day. And he and he got hit. He got hit by somebody that did a a lane change, and his car can't evade. Nothing wrong with the technology, but it tells you the car can't evade. It can only use the brakes when it sees it. And somebody drifted into his lane doing a lane change, didn't see him, and hit him. And I said, well, dude, if you were actually paying attention, you would have seen the person and you either could have hit the horn or you could have braked or accelerated. Your car couldn't do that, could it? It was just ironic that he bought it to to be distracted and then he got hit with someone doing a lane change because none of the new cars can evade. Their only mitigation is braking. And that brings us to a whole nother area. Do we need autonomous vehicles when we get there to evade? And that's a philosophical issue that's being discussed. And Again, we, we're we not quite at autonomous vehicles, Derek, you and I, but I mean, I've gone there because there's going to be a lot of philosophical discussion about autonomous vehicles and what they're going to do to try and, you know, because there's going to be, what, a 30-year crossover between what we've got now is between like level two and level two and a half vehicles, as I would call them. Uh, we're not even at level three, really. We're at level two, two and a half with the car doing some self-driving features, but Oh, by the way, you have to pay a hundred percent attention to take over when the car does when the car can't see the road or can't see the road markings, or you know it starts raining or something and covers up the road markings. The car can't do that. I mean, I think it was a Ford executive. I can't remember his name. Uh, I read it, but he said he doesn't believe it's fair to essentially disable the driver with these self-driving functions and then expect them in a heartbeat to under, to look up and understand exactly what's going on and then make the right evasive move, absolutely unfair. So some companies are aware of this and they're not throwing all this stuff into every vehicle uh, because they understand there's a real danger of disabling the driver and then having a problem, which is happening all over. But we'll get more into whether these things can save lives, yes. But at the moment, because of the crossover, next maybe 30 years plus, you're gonna have guys, Derek, you love historic vehicles you're going to be able to take your historic vehicle on the road with all the autonomous vehicles. But for the next 10, 20, 30 years, there's going to be half the vehicles are going to be driven by public and half of them are going to be, let's say, fully autonomous in 30 years maybe. There's going to be that huge crossover. And that's happening now with the technology that's in the cars, being abused by people, not being explained how to use it. And it's, it's adding to the problem at the moment, which is why, again, People feel safe in these cars now being more distracted. And what's happened to the statistics? 8,000 more people a year are getting killed in the U.S. Of course, we don't hear about it on the news, right? It's not newsworthy. No, 8,000. I mean, if that was a war anywhere that we were losing 8,000 young people from our armed services in a conflict somewhere, 8,000 a year. You don't think that would be on the news? Plus one and a half million more a year than in 2014 we're, we're, were injured in 2017. 1.5 million more. I mean, these numbers are, uh, we've never seen these numbers since the Second World War. I mean, going back to the Second World War as far as traffic safety, that year was when about a million plus U.S. service people came back to the U.S. with money and was suddenly implanted back. We had a pretty big increase in traffic safety problems that year. That's the only year that you can compare to. If that year didn't exist, post-Second World War, these numbers are unprecedented that we've seen with the increase in fatalities and injuries. It's incredible. But again, I'm, I'm one voice. But, um, you know, autonomous, self-driving stuff, I'm totally with you, dude. It's disabling, I call it, you know, enabling to disable. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of that going on, unfortunately, because, the, again, we're not training people how to use it because we didn't train them how to drive. We just gave them a driving license with Kellogg's cornflake packet tops, right? I mean, you know, to be cynical.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I that, and and I, you know, as I said, you know, on some of the shows we've talked about this before, we get pretty cynical. I mean, it's it's yeah. uh, you know, it's it's scary. I think mm-hmm. we're we're at a, a scary time yeah. in automotive, uh, you know, uh, public safety,
1: yeah.
0: and uh, not a scary time, but a. Um, interesting time in automotive technology development um, related to some of these things Mm -hmm. something as you say yes uh, we need to do something something needs to change for the safety of the american public on the roads Yeah. yeah we we talk a little bit about well we talked a lot about the technology that's been added to cars lane change warnings all the things we just brought up love the enable to disable uh kind of label on that that's that's I think I heard you mention it in one of your talks before and yeah. I probably didn't quite mm-hmm. click with me the way it did right now so you you've got the traffic safety foundation going you're mm-hmm. you're hoping to get out to more and more schools across the US get out parents. to more and more parents, parents yeah huge yeah. parents huge yeah. parents yeah. and you know and with those kids of all ages kids, that's right. the key yeah. 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 yeah how do you see your foundation evolving with some of the technology that's changing with the automobile and, and you know, some of your um, primary concerns that you address with it? Uh, do, you, do you see your foundation changing? Do you see, you know, in, in some of the ways you need to teach people about the distractions of driving? What are your kind of just your thoughts on what the future, not only maybe of your foundation looks like, um, drivers, but also drivers, you know, education, safety, mm-hmm. and all of those things that go right. behind that. What, what, just kind of speculation. I mean, we don't yeah. have to, you know. No, no, no. The, the,
1: the, yes. Um, the infotainment system stuff that we have now, plus the technology, needs to be taught in the driver education cycle. But remember, uh, that's not being taught, and the states, uh, bless them, are trying their hardest to stay on top of this, but it is going at such a pace. Most states are way behind on this, uh, even if they're even addressing it. Because I was at a state conference uh, just yesterday and the day before, and um, the questions that came up, not from me, from the driver education teachers is, what do we do with the backup cameras? Because a lot of driver ed teachers are covering them up when they're doing the, the, the driving lessons because they want the kids to know what's what. And then uh, the state person there was asked, well, should we be doing it? Should we be covering up during the test? Should we not be covering up during the driving test? What should we do? There wasn't a good answer. There wasn't a good answer. And the, the answer for me is the technology is really useful, but it needs to be trained and in the curriculum that we use the technology along with the human aspect of looking, continuing to look but they didn't have an answer and that and that's nothing against the particular state you know which will remain lameless or whatever it doesn't matter the point is they are aware of the problem but it's very hard to get curriculums redone to get this information out there so for me the fact that i am much more nimble on my education material that's why driver educators are supplementing sometimes a curriculum that's two inches thick and you get a kid for six hours on on road and maybe 20 25 hours in a classroom of which most of it you know is is difficult to say that you can't go through the curriculum so what the teachers do they pick and choose the bits that are going to help them pass the test which is pretty obvious which bits doesn't take them long to do that so they're looking for really good information to help these kids survive because that's what we have to do so for me I've pretty much okay as far as my curriculum stuff my stuff to get out there is okay but I think the adaptation for the states and the test is going to be taking the good technology from the cars and explaining how we're supposed to help the kids learn. So at least in driver's education, they get an understanding of how to use the technology along with how to to pass the test and have some test questions about it. But the biggest problem is if you go to like Vermont, which I've done quite a lot of work with Vermont and New Hampshire uh, for driver education, you go up there, I mean, the cars that the kids have in the high school are very old. There's not a lot of new cars, which so you don't have the technology. It's a huge problem. So you can't have one curriculum for, you know, uh, Vermont's, you know, or New Hampshire major cities, uh, Boston, Mass., and then you go to other parts of Massachusetts where it's basically much older vehicles in the high schools because it won't relate. Overall education is the human factor and that's what we need to get to. The specifics about how to teach, if you just teach people to be aware and utilize your eyes, eye scanning, situational awareness, no matter what you're doing, whether it's looking for the other distracted driver coming into your driving space, or whether it's when you're backing up out of a parking spot, you understand I cannot do it quickly. I have to basically make sure that I can see. These countermand the fact that you may have new technology that you're working around. So I think it's more important to, for the states to do something to include how to deal with new technology if, you, if your student has a car with it, but a lot of your students at the moment don't have it. And we have to remember that the high school students, the cars they use are their cars. It may be dad's hand-me-down pickup truck still in many, many states, which is nothing wrong with that, but that it may not even have ABS brakes. You know, I mean, a Ford Mustang in two thousand eight, you could still get without ABS brakes. It was an option on some of the Mustangs back in '08. I know that for a fact because I was dealing with something with an '08 Mustang fairly recently, and I and I understood that it was optional. So I think we've got to be very very flexible, um, and it's a it's it's a it's definitely um, it's a it's an interesting conundrum,
0: as I'll call it. Yeah, yeah, and so with technology heading the way it is we you touched on it briefly a little bit ago Mm -hmm. yeah you started talking about let's say we're at level two self-driving vehicles Mm -hmm. something like that we've talked about on the show bob lutz's comments uh, i think a couple months ago about you know in 30 year i think he said something about in like 30 years uh, you know no one's going to be driving anymore we're going to have autonomous pods that you know travel us around where we need to go you know it'll you just show up at your door. You'll jump in. It takes you where you go. A couple ways to look at this and, and you know, chat with you about it. But from guys who love to drive cars, from guys who are people, you know, mm-hmm. ladies, men, whoever, women, kids that love cars and love the skill, truly skill mm-hmm. of driving an automobile. Mm-hmm. A lot of us don't want to see it. I, I've said it on on here before. I'll be the 60-year-old guy getting arrested every time, every weekend because I'm out driving around in one of my, you know, my 1917 Overland or my 23 Peerless driving on the road and they're getting in the way of the pods Mm -hmm. and I'm going to get arrested and they're going to be like, Derek, would you stop doing that? Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't want to give that up and I'm sure you wouldn't either, uh, being, you know, that you love driving. Yep. You know, what are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts on this future of the automobile industry and... Fully autonomous vehicles. Like where, where do you see that going? With everything you're doing, yeah, with not only your racing career, mm-hmm. your traffic safety education mm-hmm. foundation, mm-hmm. your your passion of the automobile, right? What are your thoughts on where that's all possibly headed? Well, there's no denying where it's going. I think um, I, I met
1: with uh, uh, Mark Rosekind, who's one of the people running Zooks, uh, the Zoox, the Z O O X company, and uh, Mark. Uh Zook's company is probably one of the forerunners uh, of fully autonomous vehicles, um, which would be the basically the, the vehicle that shows up at your front door or is sitting on your driveway and just say, uh, open the door. You get in and say, let's go to grandma's, and it goes takes you to grandma's. That Those companies are growing. There are several of them, very, very, very well-funded, fully autonomous level four or five vehicles are on the way. They're not here yet. Um, But they will be coming. So there'll be no steering wheel. There'll be no nothing. You just sit in it and that's it. No doubt about it. But I think, Derek, I think the crossover time is going to be a lot longer than people think. And so I think you'll be safe probably for your lifetime having areas. But think about the infrastructure, how it has to change. Um, They already have bicycle lanes in other countries which are completely separate. We have bicycle paths which are completely separate from the freeway in many states now because they they had an ability to put a path fairly close. You can see them, but they're way, way far away from any danger. I think autonomous vehicle, fully autonomous vehicles will have lanes just like uh, trucks. The first probably fully autonomous vehicles will be trucks and they'll have these trucking lanes. Uh, Various cities in Europe are already designing these areas so i think the infrastructure will change to separate us and i think maybe down the road um yeah many i mean quite a few decades i think derek before because that you know think about the number of vehicles out there think about the number of you know years that we're looking at here it usually takes 11 to 15 years even for a new model or a new like piece of technology like abs abs there's still 30 percent of vehicles out that don't have abs it's 30 percent i mean that's a lot you'd imagine everything but no no and as far as you know traction stability control has been since like 2011 12 you know it's still a lot of vehicles don't have that so it takes about 15 years for this to start well we don't even have autonomous vehicle one out there yet that's for sale so when it starts add on another 15 years for that i don't think you're going to be bothered you know until you probably don't feel like driving anymore <laughs> uh, you know uh, i think it's going to happen i'm You know, the technology is going to make us safer, Derek. There's no two ways about it. Whatever I may want to think that I'm a good driver, a fully autonomous vehicle will not fall asleep. It will not take drugs. It will not drink beer. It will not speed. It will do exactly what it's programmed to do. And it will probably not be able to evade either. uh, And that's the problem with the crossover. So when you have the intermix of vehicles that basically can't evade, they can only brake to mitigate, that's going to be a problem. That's what happened with, uh, I think it was one of the Uber vehicles that ended up hitting something because somebody turned in front of it. All it could do was brake. You or I, potentially, if we were paying full attention or some of the listeners, would have able to go left or right and maybe miss it. But the only mitigation it had was braking, and when it hit, it it rolled onto its side. It wasn't like some major crash. But that's the problems that you're going to get. Um, so there's definitely problems, but overall, it's going to be safer. You know, it won't tailgate. It won't be in a situation like that. But yeah, they, they'll get rear-ended. The Google cars have been rear-ended yeah. a bunch because, you know, they, they, don't, not, they don't get distracted and they stop. And we know every vehicle behind it has that potent, propensity to be distracted driver. I, I'm not worried about it because I probably am old enough not to worry about it. And the new generation, from what I see at high schools um, these days, the interest in driving is waning. And I think, sadly, in a way, there's hope. Think about golf courses. You cannot get onto your high street and start smashing golf balls. You can't go into your local park and start smashing golf balls around or in the dog park, you can't go smashing golf balls around. There are many, many racetracks, more and more being built, these country club places. Ultimately, I think cars to drive, it'll be an experiential place where people will be able to park their favorite cars, you may, you know, and, or you'll be able to go and experience, they'll have a vintage historic park where you can go and and pay money and drive around for a while, drive this park. I mean, it probably sounds disgusting at the moment, but but the point is, you'll have your perimeter road for the 1925 Panard, and you'll have a racetrack for the Corvette from 2018 Z01 that's still sitting there that you can go drive. I mean, ultimately, the number of people that will do that will probably be like the number of people that play golf. And sadly, driving will go that way. Yeah, for us, but I I often say we've probably seen the best of times and we're seeing the best of times. You know, when we did a test for automobile the other day at the MSP with a 700 horsepower Porsche, a 700 horsepower McLaren, a 700 horsepower Corvette. And they're all, you know, the Corvette way more attainable because it's 125 grand. The others are much more money. But the bottom line is you can go buy those and you can drive them on track. And there's a lot of tracks now where you have you can have a membership where you can actually go drive some cars like that on track for an experiential deal. Places all over the country now that have a, all these exotic cars at the racetrack, they are doing really well. So the guy shows up in a in a you know a, an Econobox car and he gets to drive around in a GT3 Porsche or or a Corvette ZR1 every weekend. Those places are growing. I think we're seeing the signs because I'm sort of in the automotive business in the sort of uh, media bit, you are too. Some of it we don't want to see. We're kind of looking at it with one eye open and one eye closed, but I'm not worried about it. And I think ultimately cars aren't going anywhere and there'll be somebody out there that makes an individual pod that's pretty cool. I don't know how it's going to be, but yeah, in, in a hundred years that, that generation coming up won't, won't know what to do with a stick shift any more than they'll know what to do with a spoon, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's just the way it is, Derek. Times change, mate. Times yeah. change.
0: Yeah, and it, it's funny they brought that up because we've we've actually talked about that exact scenario. Uh, in previous episodes okay, of, of okay. driving parks, things like yeah, that, yeah, where sure. you could go, and, there you go. and you yeah, know, and there's there's so much to talk about. Uh, we might have to have Andy back on uh, down the road sometime because I just keep coming up with more more questions and and more things to chat with you about. One of the things I look at uh, that I I fear about that, and I I might even talked about it on the episode we brought it up on. You know, part of, I guess, the the passion for me in driving, if I get in one of my old cars, friends that have old cars, is, you know, you, you drive out of your driveway, you get to the road, and you go, do I want to turn right or left today? And where am I going to go? And at a driving park, it's, this is the planned route. Mm-hmm. You go, and and... You know, yeah, how many times can you do that till you get bored? But that we'll 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 save that for yeah. maybe another future episode that you might join us on um, when the rest of the guys could be here. Even be great, man. <laughs> so so let's let's uh, maybe turn this around. We're we're about where we need to be. Probably this might run a little long, but I think people will find it interesting seeing uh, Andy Pilgrim is here. Uh, let's have a little fun for the last couple minutes. And uh, you you've spent a long time racing. You've uh, driven Corvette racing a lot. You've driven Cadillac, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. racing. Uh, right now, you're you're driving Camaro racing. This year, this
1: uh, year did the Camaros. Yes, yep. yes.
0: So a long history with uh, the GM line of cars. I mean, yeah, you've done some Porsches in there, mm-hmm. things like that. But uh, you, you know, you you've been with uh, GM and Chevy for for quite some time. So I get harassed a little bit on this show by my uh, co-hosts, or I, I get harassed about this topic uh, by my co-hosts on this show. So uh, I'll I'll throw it at you. Um, you know, uh, what what do you think about the mid-engine Corvette?
1: Ah, oh, that's an interesting question. Gosh. You know, I feel right now because I sort of watch a lot of cartoons, and I kind of have a sense of humor that I could just make something up and tell you it's going to be this, that with the V8 this and the V6 that, and all the rest of it. Um, honestly, Derek, you know, if I did know and if I told you, then I wouldn't be actually get out of this room. Guys, guys in a guys in a black suburban would be out front, and they'd just take me away. Uh, boy, I wish, man, I wish. I've seen the spy pictures, just just like all the other enthusiasts out there. I am, I am excited to see it, man. I am excited to see what it is. If it is anything, you know, I don't know. I, I really don't know. Yeah, I, w- I, I wish I knew more. It's yeah. it's
0: it's it is pure speculation. Yeah. Even for us around here, yeah, you know, we don't we don't know. We we don't. Uh, yeah, we don't. And know. yeah, you know, it's as as I say, it's speculation. But is it is it the way that? Let me let me try to phrase it in a way that we mm-hmm. can you know d- you know kind of have some fun with it, but be serious as well and and actually thoughtful. Is it the next? Is it the next step that that Corvette has to go? I mean, the the ZR1 you've driven the new two thousand nineteen ZR1, uh, you know, over seven hundred horsepower, mm-hmm. top speed well over two hundred mile an hour. Uh, Tadge, uh, chief engineer right now, Tadge mm-hmm. Uchter, has, you know, we we've heard him say he said it in public at at numerous talks. Corvette's at its brink. Front engine, you know, essentially a a front mid engine car. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, the Corvette mm-hmm. is right now is is at its brink. You know, they stretch, they are stretching it as far as it seems they can go. So is it the next logical step or, you know, what well, I mean, what do you think to, to, let's say to compete with, you know, Porsche and Ferrari and all those other mid-engine supercars that are out there? I don't necessarily think so, actually, because the 755
1: horsepower ZL1 is a monster. It handles, I mean, it's quite heavy. You know, it's quite heavy for a for a, for a sports car. That you know, it's just heavy. You know, thirty five, thirty six hundred pounds. It's a bit heavy. Um, but the thing is, the way it handles and the the superb tires, the Michelin's on there, the Cup Twos are. It just belies completely belies the weight of the car. So when you have it on track, um, it's just ridiculously good. But we're looking at the ZR1, which is a seven fifty five horsepower. If you look at the cars that are more, you know, the the regular four sixty horsepower car. There's a lot of cars that go up incrementally. Uh, If you look at the Porsche Turbo S, just as an example of a car that's similar, it sort of increases in 10 or 20 horsepower increments and has been doing so over, you know, decades. Um, And I think there's a lot of room to go with the front mid-engine car. Um, You know, different design. I mean, this this C7 design is superb. I mean, uh, you know, Corbinian did a phenomenal job on it, and uh, it looks awesome. You know, they can redesign, come up with a new car that doesn't necessarily have to be mid-engine at all. So as far as rear mid-engine, I mean, honestly, I think they could, they, they could do a lot with what they have. Because you could end up being your more regular, you know, Corvette being 480 horsepower or 500 horsepower. We know that that engine's gone and that could keep us going for another 15 years with a front-engine car. And the handling side of it and the tires, I mean, the Grand Sport on track for me is just an absolute joy. I mean it's an absolute joy you know i'll put that thing with a you know the 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 fun of driving a grand sport on track along with like a gt3 porsche you can't find two better track track cars off the showroom floor period they're just an absolute ball to drive um so honestly yes the 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 top top you know tier 755 zr one crazy crazy good but Yeah, you probably can't go much faster than that with a a track car potentially, true. So if that's the goal of having the ultimate car, maybe then you're looking at a mid-engine car uh, potentially that could be better. But boy, it's hard to imagine you're going to just start with something that's going to be better than a ZL1. But uh, I'm sure the engineers at Chevy could do it uh, if they want to do. But I see see potential all over for, um, you know, a little modification to what we have now and maybe a redesign that's a that's a front car so i don't you know but for ultimate performance um yeah mid-engine is probably if you're talking racetrack yeah the mid-engine then probably makes more sense if you're going real performance on track and sure corvette i think wants to be at the, the the thin part of the pyramid there at the very top then maybe a mid-engine car is the way to go to get to that ultimate level and and compete with the best. But look at the Porsche 911. Look at the fastest car around track at the moment, period, in any of the testing that's going on. It's a rear-engine 911 GT2 RS. It's a monster. You know, all the magazines that do their annual things, not our magazine because we don't concentrate on lap times too much, but all the other magazines have done their thing that do lap timey stuff, GT2 RS. Well, look where that engine is it's still a 911 and it's still in the back so I think it's not just a shoe in given that they have to go that way no and I'm not saying they won't I'm just saying those guys can find more and more if they want yeah it might cost a bit more might cost a bit more they're gonna have to go to some lightweight stuff and do some stuff but oh I feel they could probably do it yeah
0: yeah very cool very cool well appreciate you uh taking the time andy to come on and and do an interview i do want before we you know before we go step back to traffic safety education foundation yes Yes. Um, how can people find out information about it
1: yeah And, and i don't actually there's one question that i get quite a bit it's like people say why are you in this you know it's like you don't even you're not even from america and um it's just a quick thing in the sense that I became a US citizen in 1998 because people sense from the accent, you know, you're from England. And of course, I grew up in England. I learned to drive in England, which has given me an appreciation of a different way to be trained to drive for sure. But I did become a US citizen in 1998. So this is a very, uh, it's when I say we and us, I, I, I definitely talk about the US. And my Traffic Safety Education Foundation is, they can find me and, and find free information for their families. Remember, parents with children of all ages. And you know the biggest group that's paying the most attention now? Grandparents. So if any grandparents are listening to this and you need information because you're worried about how the grandkids are getting driven around by your own kids, just just send me, drop me a message through the contact area and I can send you information and, and DVDs or tell them, tell them where they can download stuff. DVDs are kind of old century, but 75% of all the traffic safety, as traffic, education teachers that I deal with still want a DVD which is why I still have DVDs on there but everything is downloadable uh, viewable on YouTube for free and my DVDs are free so uh, www.tsef.org. so that's wwwtommyedward uh, wait what am I saying TS yeah, sorry tommy sammy edward Frank.org yeah. there we go yeah tsef.org but thanks for thanks for that asking about that that's no, very, very kind problem, of you, Derek. Not a Thanks. And, and, and it's, it's free stuff for
0: families and, yeah. and teachers or uh, even students, of course. Yeah, free stuff. And, yeah. and also, I mean, if, if they want to learn more about Andy Pilgrim himself, I believe mm-hmm. it's andypilgrim.com. Yes, yes, there's yeah, that. Too. And there's, yeah, there's yeah. links there and, oh, yeah. for oh, yeah. traffic yeah, safety as well. Yeah, there are. There's yeah. links there for traffic safety and
1: also, you know, fun race videos, but the race videos as well. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah all yeah. kinds of fun stuff
0: very cool so thank you so and, much Derek. Uh, it's been hey, fun man we'll do it again uh, yeah we'll have and like i say, we got to get you back on when some of the other guys are here so we can get a a full big conversation going on and, and get your thoughts on maybe some other uh general automotive you know history and automotive uh hobby type stuff that we all get into so uh but i, I like i say i appreciate you taking the time um and we'll obviously put up uh, all the links on our uh, social media and our website. Uh, of course, listeners know, you know, uh, nodrivinggloves.com. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at nodrivinggloves and uh, then um, uh, Instagram, places like that, at nodrivinggloves. And of course, if you want to shoot us an email, even if you want to shoot us an email to get in touch with Andy Pilgrim, nodrivinggloves at com. Yeah, we uh, appreciate you guys all listening. We will be back with another episode down the road. So have a good evening.